Show of hands, how many of you at some point in your life have worked in sales in some capacity? All right, a bunch of you. Wow. Uh, Back in 01, after I graduated from Grove City College, I was hired as a management trainee for Cintas Corporation. And after some sales training, I became a Cintas sales rep. And uh, I, I was mediocre at best. I mean, if I found a rich guy wandering through the Sahara, I might be able to sell him a cold Gatorade. I mean, on a good day, if, if sales were up, I'm just not a very good salesman. And um, sometimes I, I actually dreaded going out into my sales territory. I wanted to just stay in bed, and that wasn't necessarily because I needed more sleep. I just, I just didn't want to go out there, and, and maybe you felt similar things on certain days. Cold calling and door knocking, business after business after business in a very price sensitive and and competitive market and getting rejected over and over and over again. Uh, that That was hard for me. But I went out and by God's grace, I did get some sales and I did help the company to a certain extent. Uh, despite my averageness, I did help the company grow, and God gave me unique opportunities along the way to share uh, my faith in Jesus Christ with people uh, while at Cintas. And one of the other salesmen on one day, I was actually taking over his territory, he looked at me and he said, someday, or not someday, he said, you should be a preacher. You should be a preacher. So maybe he was prophetic in that sense, but we accuse some salespeople of being shady, and some salespeople absolutely are shady, but an honest An effective salesman is really helpful, really, really helpful. We enjoy many things that come to us because there was a good salesman bringing the product to us. To be successful in sales and in order to help a lot of people, you have to really believe what you're selling. And and if you don't really believe what you're selling, it's absolutely going to show in your sales approach and how you walk through things. Um. That was part of my problem with Cintas, as I think about it. Cintas was the best in the industry, uh, in our area, definitely. But in my gut, I didn't really believe in what I was selling. I wasn't really excited about it. And, And sometimes I'd think to myself, if I was in their shoes, I would not buy what I'm selling. And and that is, you know, if you have those types of thoughts inside as a salesman, that's going to impact your sales. You you just, you don't close right, you don't press at the right time, it's a problem. The urgency to go sell, the urgency to go get the word out, to overcome objections which absolutely come with everything, and to run through walls, you know what I'm talking about, just the tenacity to get out there and to beat the competition depends so much on on your belief in and excitement for what you're selling. Sincerity, integrity, excitement, and hard work go a long way in sales. The best salesmen, the ones that help a lot of people and the ones that make a lot of money doing it are the ones that believe in what they're selling. They absolutely believe it. And they work tirelessly with sincerity and with integrity and with excitement. They have a mixture of genuine passion and hard-nosed determination. Now, I'm thankful that I am a pastor. I see Cintas trucks, and I pray to God, thank you, that I don't have to be working for Cintas anymore. 
Oh, my goodness. And they're a good company. It's just, it wasn't my thing. But in a way, I'm still selling. I'm still selling. And genuine passion and hard-nosed determination is still needed to advance the gospel. It's still needed. In fact, what we're selling is more precious than anything that anyone else has to offer. So my question is, do you really believe what John is selling in his book? We've been studying it for almost three years. Do you really believe what he's selling? Do you really value Christ? Christ is more glorious, and John's um, message has been very clear from the beginning. Believe. Believe in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and love him deeply. Believe that Jesus is the Christ. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God and live forever. So let's, let's assume that you believe. What then? What then? If, if the excitement is there for us, should we just stay in bed where it's warm and safe? Uh, secure in our salvation, pull the covers over, God help the condemned world. I'm glad I'm safe. You know, that's easy to do. What should we do while we're believing? What should we do while we're believing? Those who believe and value Christ are also committed and determined to do their part in God's mission. True believers, I mean the ones that really get it, have a mixture of genuine passion and hard-nosed determination in the, in, the, in the mission of God, to serve God. Isn't that true? Isn't that what we see in the people who are really out there on the front lines? Well, it was the case with the disciples. What we truly treasure, we trust. And what we truly trust, we tell. Brothers and sisters, we have been sent on a mission. We have been sent on a mission We're on the mission right now. The day that you were saved, the day that God changed you, you were on mission. He put you on the mission. And the mission is our life. We not only exist as individual Christians and as a body, as the church, we not only exist to glorify God by enjoying God, but we exist to glorify God by spreading his message of the forgiveness of sins through Christ. This is not our home. So staying in bed is not an option. Our home is in heaven, amen? We're aliens, we're headed there, we're headed home, but we are living and working right now in a foreign territory. And God is sending us out into that territory to offer forgiveness to the world. Are people desperate for that message of forgiveness? You bet they are. People are desperate to hear it. They need to be forgiven by God, and and they don't even really know. God's marketing and distribution plan for the gospel of Jesus Christ is, we need to hear this, us. Us. We are his marketing and distribution plan. 
You and me and others who treasure Christ. God has entrusted us with the message of forgiveness and reconciliation with God. We work together. We're on the same team. We are all important. We must do our part. And to make it even better, God gives us everything we need to succeed in the mission. And we're going to see that. It gives us everything. As a believer, you have already been sent by God. Are you still in bed? Are you lazy? Are you scared? Do you feel mediocre in your Christian faith? Or whatever the other things may be. Or are you fully engaged in God's mission giving whatever you have? Whatever you have, you're giving to advance God's mission. You see, our commission is not easy. Jesus said persecution would come. Rejection is inevitable, but Jesus also said that some people will respond, and our reward for faithfulness amidst persecution is the crown of life. And and if your life is like mine, life is on the go. I mean... Adding stuff, just I, and I get lost in it. I'm like, where am I? You know, I, I get lost in the details. It's here and there. And as we are going, we are going with the good news of forgiveness. The good news of forgiveness. Every morning when our eyes open, we are on a mission. And every morning, Jesus is right there to give us exactly what we need to succeed in the mission What does Jesus give his disciples? I want to spend some time looking at that. Jesus gives his disciples evidence and faith to displace their doubts. Evidence and faith to displace their doubts. Here's what happened, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, so it was still Sunday, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. You know, even when they saw, they doubted. In fact, Luke said that when Jesus appeared, and this is a quote, they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. They were freaked out. This this was a weird moment. And, uh, And then Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? They were looking at Jesus and doubts were arising in their heart. So is the human heart. We see, we struggle to believe. The disciples found the bodily resurrection of Jesus hard to believe, even though they were happy about it. But even in their doubts, Jesus was producing this resolute faith inside of his disciples. He had been for years strategically working to build faith in them. The disciples were together in this room in Jerusalem. Luke 24 says that it wasn't just them. There were others with them. Uh, But John, no doubt, focused on the 11 disciples, though Thomas, at this point, was not with the disciples. The doors were shut. The doors were barred. There's no way that that people are getting into this room unless they knocked the doors down. Why? Well, the disciples were scared of the Jewish leaders, Because if you think about it, you know, they hunted Jesus down and and they put him on a cross. Now that that is over and done with, what if they turn on the disciples and they start hunting them down, wanting to put them on a cross too? I mean, you can see why they were scared. 
So they locked the doors, and during conversation as they're around in this room, Jesus all of a sudden came to them, and he joined their group. He's standing right there with them. Now, he wasn't in the room already lurking in the shadows. He didn't sneak in ahead of time. Uh, He didn't come through a window. The locked doors are an, an intentional detail that John is putting in there. Jesus supernaturally came to them. And I think his body just passed right through the doors. I think he just changed the molecular structure of something and arrived and came. This is, this is fantastic. His glorified body could pass through things like linen cloths, like walls. And his body could vanish into thin air because that happened. Now, kids, all kids, listen up. Put the drawings down for the moment, for the moment, for the moment. Batman, you'll hear your pastor say this, Batman and Spider-Man and Superman and all the other men that do things, great things, they're cool. They're cool, all right? I like superheroes. And, and I want you to think, kids, for a moment, why they're cool. Why do we think superheroes are cool? You see, superheroes are cool because they reflect a greater power, a greater superpower. They're, they're, they're pointing us to something that is much more Okay, And they're just an illustration of something that's infinitely better. And what do you think that is? Jesus. Jesus. They point us to Jesus, and not always faithfully. I'm not saying they're all great. I'm just saying their power to do these incredible things is pointing to a Jesus that is so much better than these made-up superheroes because, hear this, kids, Jesus is real. Jesus is real. He actually does supernatural things. So kids, be blown away by what Jesus can do. Because the most awesome superpowers, and I'm talking the real ones, all of them belong to Jesus. He is better. You can draw a picture of that. All right. The disciples saw his scarred hands. They saw his scarred side. They heard his familiar voice. They touched his glorified body. And he told them, touch me. And see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. What an experience for these guys to be encountering the risen Christ. Now think about this. God was launching Christianity from a launch pad of tangible proof. That's amazing grace. Ravi Zacharias, brilliant thinker of our time, said one time in a Q&A, and you may have seen this because I sent this email out over, video, or, uh, over email. This is what Ravi said. As an Easterner, I asked myself this question. When Jesus was asked how he was going to demonstrate it, if he were a fake, he would have said, I'm going to spiritually rise again. And they would never have been able to falsify it. But he said, I'm bodily going to rise again. That is an empirically falsifiable dictum. All they would have had to shown was the body and say, where is he? You said he was going to raise again. That is a very helpful point, a very helpful observation. What was Jesus doing? He was helping his disciples through doubt by giving objective and conclusive evidence of himself, of his own resurrection. But he was doing more. Ephesians 2 verse 8 and Galatians 5 verse 22 teach that faith is a gift from God, something that the Holy Spirit produces in people. 
So this is what I think Jesus was doing in addition to giving the evidence. He was building indestructible faith inside of his disciples. A faith that would endure persecution as they went with this incredible message on this mission. He gave the foundation for faith and he gave the faith. In other words, Jesus gave good reason for them to believe and then he made absolutely sure that they did believe. Remember what Jesus said in John 17, verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. He's speaking to God, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost. He made sure that in the end, faith won. That's what the gospel does. It displaces doubt with faith. That's what the gospel does. Now here we are almost 2,000 years later And Jesus still gives evidence and faith to his disciples. So let me say, disciples of Jesus, God does not ask you to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ without giving you sufficient reason and faith to do so. God does not ask you to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ without giving you sufficient reason and faith to do so. Jesus gives his disciples peace and joy. This is great. Look again at verses 19 through 21. Jesus told his disciples twice, peace be with you. Then again in 26. That, that was, uh, peace be with you was a common greeting at the time. And um, so he, he gave the common greeting. But here I think there's more to it. He had told them in the upper room, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. So what Jesus had accomplished already on the cross and through his resurrection was the basis of their peace. They trusted him. And through faith, he gave them peace with God. Faith was his dispensing of the peace, his peace that they had with God, with themselves, and with others. Because Jesus had conquered sin. He had conquered Hell, he had conquered Satan, he had conquered death on their behalf so that they would have peace. Romans 5, 1 says that since we have been justified by faith, so justification through faith has already happened, therefore Paul adds, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 14 says Jesus is our peace. It is faith in the death and resurrection of Christ that justifies and justification leads to peace with God. Peace with God. That peace, I want you to get this, that peace allowed the disciples to open the doors and walk out. The locked doors. They didn't stay in the room. They went Not only did Jesus give his disciples peace, but he also gave them joy. Look at verse 20. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Gladness in their heart. They rejoiced when they saw Jesus. Again, Jesus told them in the upper room, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. And then he gives a but, or he gave a but. But... Your sorrow will turn into joy. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus honored his promise. He came back to see them and to give them 
supreme joy in himself. He always honors his promises. Jesus is so trustworthy. Just as Jesus gave peace and joy to his disciples in the first century, he gives peace and joy to his disciples in the 21st century. Now let's take a quick poll. This will be fun. Coke or Pepsi? How many of you are going with Coke? How many of you are going with Pepsi? Now, okay. The hand-waving and the woo, that wins. I guess Pepsi wins. That takes you. Pepsi people showed the like, boom. All right. Coca-Cola was invented in 1886 by pharmacist John Pemberton. And with soda fountains that were gaining popularity and temperance, which is just amazing that that happened in our country, but temperance keeping people out of bars and his unsuccessful drug sales, Pemberton invented Coca-Cola in hopes of success. But there was a problem. Pemberton wasn't a marketer. He just, I guess he wasn't a good salesman. So his partner and his bookkeeper, Frank Robinson, helped him out. And Robinson named the drink and designed the the uh, trademark script that you see in the logo uh, that's still around today. But Coca-Cola really took off when Asa Griggs Candler took the company because Candler was a marketer. And he hired traveling salesmen to go out and to pass out free coupons for tastes of Coca-Cola. And then he plastered the Coca-Cola logo everywhere. I mean, he put it on calendars, posters, notebooks, bookmarks, And so we enjoy Coca-Cola today in large part because of successful marketing and distribution. The word got out about Coca-Cola. Now, Pepsi's story, fascinating. I think I like this one better. It was invented by Caleb Bradham in 1893. Bradham graduated from UNC, and then he went to medical school. While in school, he worked part-time Uh, as a pharmacy apprentice at a local drugstore. Well, a family crisis actually led him to have to drop out of med school, but he eventually owned his own drugstore where he invented Brad's Drink, all right, which which later became Pepsi-Cola. The name Pepsi, this is so interesting, came from the word dyspepsia, which means indigestion, uh, because uh, Bradham thought that his drink actually aided and, and helped in digestion. Pepsi-Cola went bankrupt in 1931, but in 1936, with the introduction of the 12-ounce bottle, which I think at the time it was 6.5, so it was just like, boom, 12 ounces, wow, give it to me, ah, you know, that's, I guess, was the idea, a radio advertising campaign helped launch Pepsi back to success, but it was niche marketing to African-Americans that really launched Pepsi in the 1940s. Now, you have segregation. You have Jim Crow laws looming. Edward uh, Boyd led an all-black sales team across America to promote Pepsi. Now, this team needed to be relentless because there was a cost. The team faced discrimination, threats from the KKK, and even insults from Pepsi-Cola employees. Journalist Stephanie Caparel interviewed some of that sales team in the late 1940s, and this is what she wrote. The team members had a grueling schedule, 
working seven days a week, morning and night, for weeks on end. They visited bottlers, churches, ladies' groups, schools, college campuses, YMCAs, community centers, insurance conventions, teacher and doctor conferences, and various civic organizations. They got famous jazz men like Duke Ellington and Lionel Hampton to give shout-outs for Pepsi from the stage. No group was too small or too large to target for a promotion. What would get the delicious taste of Pepsi to thirsty people? Skilled, strategic, and tenacious marketing. Countercultural marketing. We're going to do it a different way. And of course, distribution. And it worked. Pepsi sales grew. Here's my point businesses or ideas launch when people believe and then they work tirelessly to get the word out. So with, with excited, without excited boots on the ground, ready to go, how is a business or idea going to have any traction and go anywhere? You see, we enjoy Coke and Pepsi today because certain people believed enough to risk and to get out there and to get the word out. Now let's bring it to a much more important application After the resurrection of Jesus, how would the word get out? How would the world hear about the most stunning event of history? Jesus gives his disciples a mission. He gives his disciples a mission. A mission is an important assignment. A mission is go and do this. In January of 1945, 121 volunteer U.S. Army Rangers were sent to rescue more than 500 allied POWs in the largest Japanese prison camp located in Kavanatuan, Philippines. It was, uh, it was called the Great Raid. You might have heard of it. 522 prisoners were liberated because Army Rangers were sent on a mission and they succeeded. Jesus looked at his disciples and he sent them on a mission. Verse 21, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And Jesus wasn't asking his disciples to do anything that he had not already done himself. First, God the Father sent Jesus to earth on a mission to do his perfect will, to shine light in the darkness of the world, to bear witness to the truth, to seek and to save the lost to give his life for the life of others, and that's what Jesus did. Jesus was the ultimate and paramount and apex of of missionaries, and through blood, sweat, and tears, he accomplished his mission. And then in a similar way, Jesus was sending his disciples on a mission to the world. They had seen the risen Christ, the risen Lord, therefore Jesus was sending them to go and spread the incredible news Jesus prayed to God in the upper room, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The Father sent Jesus to accomplish salvation, and Jesus sent the disciples to proclaim salvation. I think sometimes, if we're honest, we lose sight at the fact that we are on a mission, and Jesus is the sending commanding officer. And I think we lose sight at the fact that we're in it together. How about we not fight? How about we join hands? 
with other people who are actually orthodox, Bible-believing, Christ-centered people, and we take the mission ahead. And how about we all look at our little part and say, you know what, I know based on biblical authority that I have something to contribute. So I'm not going to compare myself to anyone else. I'm not going to do something that I can't do. I'm going to focus on what God has called me to do, and I'm going to work together to advance the mission. What if that was our attitude? And what if we kept our eyes on Jesus? You see, every disciple of Jesus is sent. Every single one of them is sent. And they have the greatest mission ever. What is more worthy of our time? Worthy of our blood, sweat, and tears? What, what, what is more worthy of our best effort? But you see, Jesus does way more than just rally the troops up and send them out. He arms them. He equips them for the mission. Jesus gives his disciples the Holy Spirit. In light of Pentecost, where Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit on his disciples, verse 22 is very hard to interpret. It says this, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, all the major translations have breathed on them. But the Greek is simply breathed. The on them is not there. Now, he could have breathed on them, but perhaps he just breathed. His breath was likely symbolic of the eventual outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon them at Pentecost, which was a tremendous event. So I think it was just a symbolic breathing of what would happen not too far from this point. Acts 1 and 2 make it pretty clear that this in John 20 was not the same event or outpouring of the Spirit as Pentecost. I think this was a guarantee, an assurance or even a foreshadowing of Pentecost. One commentator called it a pledge. I think that's probably a good word. Now, look at verse 22 again. And when he had said this, said what? Well, look again at verse 21. Peace and sending. The Holy Spirit was the seal of their peace and the power behind their mission. The opposition would would no doubt be tough, but they went with superior firepower. They went with the Holy Spirit. Now, the Trinity is also here. In verse 21, you have the Father. In verse 22, you have the Spirit. And in all of the verses, you have Son, the Son, Jesus Christ. One God, three persons, all working together for the glory of God. Now, I've got great news for you. The triune God has given you exactly what you need to persevere and to succeed in this mission, and to win. He has put his spirit in you. That is God in you. God in you. We don't need guns on our mission, amen? We don't need swords to take people's heads off on our mission, amen? We don't need coercion. We don't need sales tactics that are slick. We don't need pyrotechnics. We don't need worship drones. We don't need rock bands. We don't need celebrity endorsements. We simply need the Spirit of God to move. Amen. Come on. That preaches. That's good. That is good. I worked hard on that. We need God's Word abiding in us. We need God's Spirit abiding in us so people can encounter God's Word and Spirit through us. I almost put this in, but I'm going to put it in now. It feels like I'm on a roll. Maybe I'm not. What we win them with, 
we win them too. Someone else's quote, that's not mine, but that's good. So Jesus sends his disciples on a mission. What's the mission? What, what good do we have to offer people? Because if we're going to take a risk, we better, be, better know. Jesus gives his disciples the authority of the gospel. Our message is good news. In fact, our message is the best news. We have something awesome to offer people, but we also have some bad news too. Sin kills people. God is holy and just. We aren't. God is good. We are bad. And God will judge everyone for their badness. Hell is real. It's terrible. And lots of people are going there because they refuse to love and obey God. We can't leave the bad news but true news, out. It adds urgency to the good news. But the bad news, that's not the apex of our message. That's not the apex. Oncologists diagnose cancer, but more importantly, they offer a treatment plan. Okay? They offer a treatment plan. The problem of sin and God's judgment must be diagnosed properly, but our primary focus is God's treatment plan or the forgiveness of sins. Treatment plans are only relevant to sick people who need treatment. Forgiveness is only relevant for everyone. Everyone. Everyone needs God's forgiveness. We as Christians just happen to have God's treatment plan. Our mission is to to spread God's treatment plan of hope. Anyone who repents of their sins and trusts in the person and work of Christ alone will be forgiven by God of all of their sins. It is through faith in Christ that the relentless forgiveness of God comes to us. This is what Jesus told his disciples that night, verse 23. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Now, doesn't God alone forgive sins? Seems like an awkward thing to say. What did Jesus mean in verse 23? Well, verse 23 complements verses 21 and 22. Jesus was sending the disciples to do what? To preach the gospel, which guarantees forgiveness to all who believe, and the Holy Spirit would empower their preaching as they went. So it's through the proclamation of the gospel that disciples of Jesus can grant and assure the forgiveness of sins to everyone who believes and withhold forgiveness from everyone who doesn't. Repentance and faith are implied when Jesus uses the word forgive because biblically forgiveness only comes through repentance and faith in the gospel. Dr. Andreas Kostenberger is helpful here. He wrote this, quote, Regarding this pronounced forgiveness, the believing community, that's who were there in the, in the locked upper room, or not upper room, just room, the believing community has declarative rather than originating power. Declarative rather than originating power. It is merely authorized to apply the forgiveness made available through Jesus' work on the cross on the basis of faith. Now, uh, the doctor said uh, the believing community which extends farther than the 11 disciples, more than the 11, less Thomas, were in that room. So it is the church, followers of Jesus, that possess the authority of the gospel to declare or to sanction the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness comes from God alone through the faithful proclamation and reception of the gospel. And we as Christians are authorized to apply forgiveness to people 
who believe. We have the right to do that. The responsibility. That's incredible. Our mission is to grant forgiveness to people through the gospel. Now, I can tell you with the authority of God that when you turn to Christ in faith, your sins are forgiven. I have the authority as a follower of Jesus to assure you of that truth. I also have the authority to assure you that you are not forgiven if you reject Jesus Christ. And the gospel, if you fail to repent and believe, you will never be forgiven until you do. I have the authority to say that under God. We have the authority to withhold forgiveness from those who reject Christ. Every follower of Jesus has that authority. And it's not judgmental, it's not intolerant, and it's not unkind. It is most loving because it is true. It is the message of Jesus and the authority of Jesus It is the authoritative truth of God which shines brightly out of the church. This is also a big part, a a, a big reason why it's so important to be a part of a local church body. Other disciples of Jesus help confirm the forgiveness of your sins. When you are really known by other people, by other disciples of Jesus, I mean really known, they know you, they know your faults, they know your failures, they know your gifts, they know your talents, they know you, they can come alongside of you and offer you the assurance of your forgiveness as you trust in Christ, and the opposite works as well. They come alongside of you to say, you're not living right, man. You're gonna look at your life because it's not in line with the gospel. Are you forgiven? They keep us in line. We need each other to be faithful to the scripture. We need that. I need that. Jesus gives evidence and faith to displace doubts. He gives peace and joy. He gives a mission. He gives the Holy Spirit. He gives the authority of the gospel. He gives it all to all of his disciples. But what do we do with all of these wonderful gifts? And what do those gifts prompt in us? Very quick as I bring it to a close. What do all these things that Jesus gives so tenderly and mercifully induce followers of Jesus to do. They induce disciples of Jesus to spread the incredible news of forgiveness of sins through Christ. What Jesus gives us helps us spread the news that sinners can actually be reconciled to God. Now, you might not have the spiritual gift of evangelism. You may not be an outgoing person You may not be good with words, but if you really trust Christ and all that you have in him and you you treasure Christ and all that you have in him and you really believe deep down in your soul, in your heart, in your gut that the gospel is true, then you will in some way, in your way, speak of your joy and forgiveness in him. It's going to spill from your life. How can it not? If you've tasted the sweetness of God's forgiveness, then you have something compelling to offer others that may lead them to find their greatest joy and pleasure in God's forgiveness. They're carrying the guilt. They're carrying the burden. Let's take the joy of the gospel to people who just want the burden off. And you can go because Christ has already come. So here's what I want to leave you with. I believe gratitude for God's forgiveness, is one of the most powerful motivators for mission. Gratitude. Truly grateful people are committed to God's 
mission. When we believe in Christ and experience his complete forgiveness, we want to be faithful in his mission. We're, we're just not to pay him back, just to be like, I just want to get involved. Like, show me how, God, because you've been awesome to me. We become tenacious in the, in the mission when we're grateful. The urgency you feel in God's mission depends greatly on your belief in and your excitement for Christ. It's a direct parallel, I think. We need God to give us more joy in his son. If he is gracious and if he answers our prayer to give us more joy in his son, Watch what happens. Watch what happens. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. And I pray that we would have so much joy in Christ that we can't help but let people know about the forgiveness they could have in him. That we can't help but to let people know, believers know, the forgiveness they already have in him. We can be so encouraging to each other just by saying, do you know that you're forgiven in Christ? And that all your sins have been washed away and that this is good news and that Jesus is awesome and he's better than superheroes because the stuff he does is real and it's sweet. So God, I just pray that you do a movement of joy in our congregation for Christ and his finished work and allow that to motivate us on the mission that we're already on. In Christ's name we pray, amen.